0: let's bow our hearts in prayer father we thank you for your word it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that you've not left your children in the dark you've given us the very breath that comes from your mouth that forms on the pages of holy scripture so we come with a sense of awe as we seek to study it to know you for you are known in what you have revealed in your word about yourself and thank you that your ways reveal your character And so as we study this whole subject of finances of money, something that your son repeatedly addressed, we earnestly ask that you would help us to conform to the truth of what is found here. So be with us tonight. Help me, fill me, and use me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you're here for the first time, this course is called Finances God's Way. Last week, we got as far as the uh, introduction, so to speak, we looked at some of the unique situations that we are facing at this time in American history. And then we began with Roman numeral number one, that money is a major theme in the Bible. There are over 500 verses on prayer, over 500 verses on faith, but over 2,000 verses on money. We saw that every Christian and every person is living in one of two economies, either the world's economy or God's economy. And much of that, one, depends on first whether or not you've been regenerated. If someone has not been regenerated by the Spirit, they don't have the mind of Christ. When the Bible says you're born again, you receive the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It gives you a new capacity to absorb spiritual truth that you did not have. And so Paul can say, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot appraise them because they're spiritually appraised or understood. So when we are regenerated, we have a new ability. And so sometimes when you're dealing with someone who says, I'm a Christian, and yet they can't absorb basic, even moral truth, then it causes you to question where they actually stand in their relationship with the Lord. We also spent a little time on the, what financial freedom is and what it's not. And so today on page nine, we begin with uh, the first of five major principles we're going to study, the Christian as a steward, all right? So by the end of this session, you will be able to hopefully explain where we get the biblical concept of stewardship. Uh, You'll be able to define succinctly the word steward, uh, be able to name at least three uses of money. We really kind of covered that last week. With everything you have, you either spend, save, or give, but we'll explore that a little bit deeper tonight. And then we will talk about the basic distinctions between rewards and salvation and how that specifically relates to this whole concept of money, all right? So that's kind of where we are going this evening. So by way of introduction, the biblical concept of stewardship begins with the concept that God owns it all. That's basic. God owns it all. And until we are convinced of that truth, we will not be influenced with the way we should use our money. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's in all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. Now think just about this one verse. If God owns it all, then biblically speaking, we are just stewards. But sadly, the concept of stewardship is often, very often, misunderstood. For most people, when they hear the word stewardship, what that means to them is the church wants my money, or it's time to fill out a pledge card if a church does annual pledge cards. That's what they think of when they think of stewardship. But really, the biblical concept is much broader and bigger and more refined. So let's talk about first the biblical concept of stewardship. There are four New Testament passages where you find the use of the word steward. Uh, For instance, the Bible refers to stewardship to preach the gospel. And by the way, I've put a lot of this scripture in here tonight to save time so you won't have to keep pulling your Bible out. The Bible speaks about stewardship to preach the gospel. And by the way, it's not uh, just for a preacher, so to speak, because in the broadest sense, Romans 10 makes us all preachers. Now, I'm a formalized preacher, God has called me to earn my living from the gospel. But every Christian is called to be a preacher, and your feet are beautiful if you're carrying out that responsibility. Now, you may do it differently than I will, but all of us know how to share the gospel. You say, I've never went through a course. Well, a course wouldn't certainly uh, be a bad thing to go through, and every once in a while I will teach one. But if you've been saved, you know the gospel. You can't be saved without knowing the gospel. So if you know what the gospel is, you can preach the gospel. Paul said, though, if I preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. God is entrusted in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Actually, it's found in five times in the New Testament every Christian, to preach the gospel. Now, we make verses like Matthew 28, which is probably the most commonly quoted Great Commission verse, a missionary verse. Go therefore and make disciples. Yep. Go send some missionaries to Africa or Honduras or Cuba or Japan. That's what they do. Actually, it's a participle. It literally reads, as you go, as you go everywhere you go is the thought, make disciples. It doesn't say do discipleship. There's a place for discipleship. Make discipleship. Make disciples. It's, it's uh, interchangeable there with the other Great Commission passages. Make converts. How do you make converts? You preach the gospel. It's the only way. So we have a stewardship. And one day when you meet God in heaven, one area of accountability will be the stewardship of what you did with the gospel. Whether you did it under compulsion or voluntarily, you will still give an account for your stewardship. A second major area of stewardship is over spiritual gifts, over spiritual gifts. Point two, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. By the way, Peter assumes that you can learn and discern what your spiritual gift is. Now, I have a test at searchthescriptures.org. It's 128 questions. I wrote the exam myself. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts. But if you will take that test, it may give you an idea of what your spiritual gift is. Every Christian has at least one. Some might have two or possibly even three. But everyone has at least one primary spiritual gift. And God will evaluate your use of that gift in heaven. Now, if you're a new Christian, you take an exam like that, you may not score really uniquely in any particular area. But if you're a growing Christian, you've been growing for at least a year or so, you'll begin to see some areas that are isolated. Now, with all the 16 non sign gifts in the New Testament, there's a common responsibility we all have. So you may not have the gift of serving, you're called to be a servant. You may not have the gift of evangelism, you're called to do the work of an evangelist. But God someday will ask you how you use your spiritual gift. You won't be able to say, well, I didn't know there was a spiritual gift. You need to know. Take the course in spiritual gifts. It's in the Institute of Biblical Studies. It might be helpful to some of us. Three, stewards over the local church. There's a third realm of stewardship. Over the local church. For the overseer, and the word overseer, elder, bishop, pastor is used interchangeably in the New Testament. You can go to a number of passages where in one verse he's called an elder. The next verse, the same person's called a pastor and so forth. Same office, not a hierarchical structure like in some denominations where they have a, you know, super bishop and he moves pastors around. No, they're the same office in the New Testament. And an overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He's God's steward. He's not self-willed. Not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. So again, when we speak about a steward, we're speaking of someone who is dealing with someone else's time, talent, treasure. We're to make the most of our time redeeming it because ultimately it's time that God has given to us as stewards of the church. The elders don't own this church. Christ does. He purchased it with His blood but we give an account for how we manage his church. Stewardship over the use of mammon, over the use of mammon. And we read this passage, let me read it again, Um, Luke 16. We just briefly touched on it last week from Luke 16. Now, he was also saying to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a manager. The older translations say a steward, and it's the same word that we've seen rendered in these other passages. And this steward, this manager, was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship management, for you shall no longer be steward manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. When I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he's going to give an account of his management. And by the way, What's true of this steward is true of every steward, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a judgment for Christians. We'll explore it a little bit at the end of the lesson, not to see if you get into heaven. That's settled ever before you die based on what you do with Christ. But how you use your life, how you invest your life, God's time, the health God gave you, the resources God entrusted you, the spiritual gifts, we will give an account, each one of us. So there's one thing about this guy that he wasn't all that far off, is he knew he was going to give an account to his master. You can say that much for him. And, of course, he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? hundred measures of oil. He said, Take your bill, sit down, write it 50. Cut it in half. Another, How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Write 80. It was actually about the same discount, just different commodities. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly so here is a man who knew he was going to lose his job and when the master was going to throw him out he was hoping he'd have some friends that would take him in because of the way he treated them and he as a steward had the authority to cut the bill legal deal hey man I'm gonna cut you a deal my master will never be able to bother you again you own 100 measures we'll cut it to 50 today right now pay up You got a deal, buddy. And so the master praised the unrighteous steward. It's kind of an interesting statement. He didn't approve his conduct, but he approved his shrewdness. And Jesus makes a remarkable statement here. He said he praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age. Those are non-Christians are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. That's us, believers, if you know Christ. So here's the application. Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, this man used unrighteous mammon to make temporal friends so that when he lost his job, maybe at least for a short time, he had a place to go. And Jesus is saying, I want you to use unrighteous mammon to make eternal friends. And many of you are involved in that every week, just when you give to the church. Tonight, just before we came in here, we took on six new missionaries, three couples. Missionaries, two missionaries to Cuba, two missionaries to Komoto, Japan, and two missionaries to Honduras. Now, interestingly, one of these missionaries found us on the internet, and he was looking for doctrinally sound churches. Why would he do that? I had to raise money myself for 12 and a half years as a missionary, raised all my income, all the expenses for the ministry. And now it's gotten so bad in the American church that when a missionary comes to a church, very often they say, we're really not interested. Evangelical churches, You would say that would never happen. There are missionaries who are just beating their head against the wall sometimes. And that's very sad. But when God allows us as a church to support hundreds of missionaries, which he does, we took on one at 300 a month and two at 200 a month. That's profound. And someday in heaven, because of the giving of the people of Community Bible Church, there will be people there to welcome you because you gave there will be souls in heaven and jesus is saying listen use your money in a way that you can make eternal friends and then he makes this statement and by the way i I, one year of my life i i was the director of executive ministries in dallas texas Uh, it was a ministry of campus crusade and it was started by a brother named art de moss and uh Campus Crusade had a prison ministry, and Dr. Bright said, you know, we have a prison ministry, and we reach a lot of the down-and-outers, but we're not reaching the up-and-outers. And they are just as equally in need of the gospel. And so, for a year, you know, I was trying to reach CEOs of major corporations in Dallas, and I had a Bible study once in the president and CEO of the 7-Eleven Corporation, and just different ways in which to reach people. And Art DeMoss actually developed the ministry, and he owned a huge palatial mansion in the Philadelphia area, but he didn't live in it. He he lived in just kind of a normal run-of-the-mill house by most people's definitions. He always made all of his children buy their first car. I thought that was interesting. He said, I give the first hour of every day to God, The first dollar of every 10 I make in the first day of every week in a concerted way. Anyway, he would bring in, you know, some speaker, not always known, sometimes just a well, successful businessman, and he'd invite other businessmen to come in. And uh, at his death, he had a heart attack. We were out in Colorado, and he was on the platform speaking. He had a massive heart attack and dropped dead right in front of everybody. And at his funeral, over 3,000 people came. And Dr. Bright and Dr. Billy Graham both preached his funeral, and Dr. James Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, all in heaven now. And Dr. Bright asked, how many people through the ministry of Art DeMoss have found Christ as their Savior? And I'm told over 70% of the people stood up. Now, he started, he borrowed $15,000 to start Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. Most of you have heard of it. And at his death, it was a, a billion-dollar corporation. And if you knew Art DeMoss, he was not a respecter of persons. To him, the person who cleaned his room as a maid was no less important in his sight than the guy who is a big shot of some organization. And he did everything he could to use his money for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. And you don't have to be rich and powerful to have this kind of impact because if you read 1 Corinthians 1, the truth is is that most of God's people in the world are not rich and powerful. That's the exception. God says he was faithful, verse 10, and a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he was unrighteous, and a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Do you see there's a correlation? Jesus is saying the way you use money is an index of how God entrusts greater things to you. When… um. We look for someone maybe to come on our staff, a pastor, and one of the questions I will ask is, you know, based on Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, would you allow us to do a um, background check on your finances, credit check? Would you provide your social security number? Why, Why would we do that? Because if some guy is interviewing for the job and he doesn't pay his bills on time and he wants to be a pastor of a church, I wouldn't want him on my staff. Because if you can't manage worldly riches, God's not going to entrust true riches to you. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, because, again, we talked about it last week, it's God's, it's not mine. Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. It's impossible. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So stewardship over your treasure, point B. Let's move on. Stewardship over your treasure. It has been correctly summarized that you are stewards over your time, talent, and treasure. And here I'm using the word talent in terms of giftedness, not a monetary value as it's sometimes translated in our English Bibles. In this course, we will be dealing with your treasure. For Jesus said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. So let's talk about some biblical principles relating to stewardship. The Bible shares many principles that relate to stewardship, and most of them can be summarized into four broad categories. So there are four broad categories that deal with this subject of stewardship. First, the steward's attitude, the steward's attitude. Once again, a a steward's attitude should be that God owns it all. And again, unless you've come to grips with that, that God owns everything I have, you'll never be a good steward. When people meet with me to discuss their financial problems, most often they want to discuss issues like who is to blame or what steps they should take. They're often surprised when I suggest we first look at their attitude about money because while such topics as budgeting, borrowing, tithing, saving, and other financial topics are important, our attitude is more important, it really is. Jesus will highlight that for us tonight. Once our way of thinking about money lines up with God's, it is much easier to tackle the practical matters, much easier. And this course is rooted in a biblical theology. And I know there are some like money guys out there who actually... saying some good things, but they don't always root it in Scripture. And unless a person is convinced that this is what God's Word teaches, then typically their behavior is not lasting. It's just temporal. It's for a fling. Number five, the most important principle to keep firmly in mind is to understand whose money we are talking about because the Bible teaches your possessions are not yours. And if you are married, they are not your mates. They are God's. Sadly, for many Christians today, God's ownership of everything is a foreign concept because we like to think of our money and our possessions, don't we? Yet the Bible makes it clear that all things were created by God and for God and everything belongs to Him. Colossians 1.16, here are some passages to consider. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 10, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, saith the Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. And that's an important perspective too, that when you give, you're not helping out poor little old God, because he owns it all. He's giving us a privilege. Uh, the silver is mine, Haggai too. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. First Chronicles, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and on earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So we don't want to be like King Nebuchadnezzar one of history's most powerful kings who had to learn the lesson that God owns it all the hard way. And sometimes God has to take us as children through maybe not a Nebuchadnezzar experience, but to teach us that lesson. He owns it, and he learned it the hard way. If you remember, one day he went out on the roof of the royal palace, and as he looked over the great kingdom, he said to himself, these words are recorded in Daniel 4.30, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And of course, God's answer came to him quick and pointedly such that the Lord took away his sanity and drove him to eat grass like a cow. And it was not until seven years later God saved him. I believe God saved him. I preached a sermon once on the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's in the Daniel series. God saved him where no longer he exalted in self, but in God. Nebuchadnezzar's sin was one of pride and the illusion of self-sufficiency, where like many Americans, he thought, look at what I did all by myself. Some might reason that Bible verses such as Proverbs 3.9, Colossians 4.15, most of you know those verses, refer to people owning possessions. Which they do, but only in the context of the rest of Scripture that affirms that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Certainly, number 14, next page. Certainly, you may have put in the long hours and the hard work to get where you are. By the way, some people struggle financially for the simple reason they're lazy. God doesn't bless laziness. God has a means, and He calls us to work hard. But God created you and gave you the strength and the skill to make money. Is that not what Moses warned the people not to forget before they went into the land? Remember Deuteronomy, Deuteros namos It's a Greek name in our English Bibles, in the Hebrew Bible, they use the first words of the book of Deuteronomy. But Deuteros Namas means second law. So this is Moses kind of recapitulating the law that he gave 40 years earlier. And this is kind of his last message before he knows God's not going to allow him to go into the promised land. And so he said this, beginning in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11 Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, if you forget God, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as to this day. And God's not necessarily against making some people wealthy. Usually most people that God has made wealthy, they've been entrusted to something great. And they are usually trustworthy. 16, it is healthy to find satisfaction in your work that not what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 2? But in doing so, you must never forget to thank God for creating you and giving you the gifts and the skills and the strength that allow you to succeed. Think about that sometimes, because I was talking to this one guy one day, and he owned a small company, and fed his family, met his needs, and, and he told me he was a little bit dissatisfied that, you know, he hadn't created this large company and... I said, look, you're a hardworking man. You take care of the needs of your wife and your children. There's nothing to be ashamed about. But I said, God gave you a set of skills for you. He planted you as a believer. And I said, you will rub shoulders with a certain group of people that you intersect with in your life where God needs you in that place. And maybe had God, you know, made you some super wealthy guy, who's going to reach these people? God needs people in every facet of society. And that's not to say that the guy who owns a small company couldn't make it explode. He might if God so chose. But sometimes God doesn't choose to do that because he wants to plan us where we are at so that we can be his ambassador and represent his son there. 17. 17 as a way of life, to guard our hearts from developing what I would call the Nebuchadnezzar complex, if you heard my sermon on that, we must be quick to replace our pride with an attitude of thankfulness, as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 commands. That's a verse every Christian should know, memorize, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." If you haven't done this before, I suggest you might consider going home tonight and acknowledge as a family that God owns everything. If married, you might take turns saying out loud that God owns some particular object that he entrusted to you. I'm in God's house. I'm sitting here in God's chair. I'm writing with God's computer. I'm looking out God's window and at God's backyard. Have you ever done something like that? I tell you, it's very liberating and it's sobering, and when you engage your children in that process, that this is really God's, and a nation and a life that is spiraling away from God is unthankful. Is that not Romans 1? Let me just turn there for a second. You might want to turn there, Romans 1. Paul appeals to general revelation. Can any man say there's no God? Of course not. And, of course, he he speaks about God's wrath that comes on an individual or on a nation or on a world, not his eschatological wrath. That's one dimension of wrath. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his angels and mighty fire, he'll deal out retribution. That's eschatological wrath. That's in the future. That's when God will ultimately send people to the lake of fire. But there's also a present dimension of God's wrath. And that's what he's dealing with here in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God not will be revealed, but is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. How so? For God made it evident to them. How so? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because God's creation shouts his attributes. There's no such thing biblically as an atheist. And I hate these Christian testimonies that say, well, I was an atheist. And I say, God, if you're there, that's just nonsense. That's not true. I was an agnostic. That's not true. You were never an atheist. Now, in your pride, you might have said, I'm an atheist. But... We all know there's a God through creations, Romans 2, through conscience. For even though they knew God, verse 21, not knew him in a saving way, for this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, but knew of his existence. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, useless in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And that's kind of where we are as a nation. School boards all across America. In 1956, there were thousands and thousands of school boards all across America. I cover this in my home school seminar. Today in America, there's about 1,800 they had 28,000, if I remember, in 1956. Education was on a parental level, small, local schools, sometimes three schools, it's all changed. And of course, the biggest thing is it's changed from the top down, the federal government got control. The, government, the federal government doesn't come into American public education until 1959. Prior to that, it was all state-run. All Education in America was funded on a state level. 59 was a critical year because now, for the first time, the federal government got in. And this was a dream for the humanists because they knew that they could control things given enough time from the top down. You want our federal money? You follow our federal standards. And so we decided in the 60s and 70s we're not going to honor God as God. We're going to teach our children out of the glue into the zoo. That became you, evolution. We refused to give him thanks or praise. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. And so sensuality began to fill the American landscape, the sexual revolution of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They exchanged, verse 25, the truth of God for lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. And that's what men are doing. That's the whole Green Movement. you got people who worship the creation, rather than God. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, verse 26. Homosexuality. The women exchanged the natural function, the men exchanged the natural function. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So God gave them over to a depraved mind, a reprobate mind. You could render the Greek as it does in the Slavic translations, an upside-down mind. And that's where we're at. So if I speak to our young people about something that is sinful, the culture would say, I'm sinful. For me to call fornication, adultery, homosexuality, drunkenness, I'm sinful. We have an upside-down culture. It's just reversed. And when that happens, this list in verses 29 to 32 become a reality in a nation. It grows with time and it deepens and it broadens. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know this is wrong. How do they know it's wrong? Because God, Romans 2.15, wrote it into their spiritual DNA. That's why Paul can say, pagans who have never seen the Bible have no written law. They have a law unto themselves and that their conscience defend or accuse them. So in their heart of hearts, they know homosexuality is wrong, adultery is wrong, drunkenness wrong, it's all wrong. But not only do they practice such things, they give hearty approval to those who do the same. They become evangelists for sin. And that's where our culture is moving. But it begins, we don't care to honor God. I was talking to an older gentleman this week, and he said to me, you know, Pastor Carl, my favorite holiday in America was Thanksgiving. I said, it's not anymore. He said, it always has been. He says, even Thanksgiving is no longer a time of Thanksgiving in America. We've just kind of shut God out. 80% of Americans 50 years ago would be in some house of worship on any Sunday. Now it's about 20%. Because we've shut God out. And when a nation does that, they are in a tailspin. And when an individual born-again Christian refuses to give thanks, they are in a downward spiral. You read 1 Corinthians 10, and if you... Read that chapter of Scripture. If there's one thing that bothers God more than anything, it's grumbling, complaining. So we need to give thanks. 19, a nation and a life that is, a, is spiraling away from God is unthankful. 20, maybe tomorrow during your time with God, read 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 16. And writing your own words what these verses say. That's always a good exercise. My wife copies Scripture every morning. She copies like a chapter of Scripture, and then she goes back and she kind of writes notes on what God said to her. But when you slow down sometimes, you just even copy Scripture, it causes you to reflect and to think, and maybe copy that tomorrow, and then just write your own commentary, write a little paraphrase, and then ask God to make you a thankful person and not a prideful person in managing, quote-unquote, your things. One of the most important foundational principles to understanding biblical stewardship is to understand and acknowledge that God owns it all. In other words, it's not a 90-10% relationship or something. It's not a 90 10 relationship. It's 100% God's. It's 100% God's. Page 13. Are you still with me? Am I going too fast? All right. Have you ever taken the time to acknowledge to God that He owns it all? or do you still claim ownership? If God asks you today to give an account of how you've been managing his resources, how would you do? Just an exercise. Fill it out, if you've never done that, and say, God, I admit, it is all yours. So that's the steward's attitude. Let's go, secondly, to the steward's perspective, all right? The steward's perspective. The steward has an eternal perspective. The steward is to have an eternal perspective. Ask yourself, am I living for the line or for the dot? Now, the, the line didn't come out graphically quite right, but they're supposed to be at the end of each line an arrow, okay? So you can add that. Take a line and extend it in both directions infinitely. Let's call that eternity, because eternity is forever. And then take your 60 or 70 years and just put a little slosh, slash on that eternal line. That's your life. So you want to ask yourself, am I living for the 60 or 70 years only, or am I living with eternity in mind? That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live with an eternal perspective, and we're going to talk about how we do that in this course. The Bible describes man's condition on earth as one as aliens. That sounds kind of spooky, alien. Mm. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens. What does that mean? It means that earth is not our home. We're just passing through here. He describes us like grass in Psalm 103, 15 and 16. We're were are compared to grass. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Um, we're compared to as strangers and exiles in the book of Hebrews, that great hall of fame of faith chapter, Hebrews 11. It says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Now, without me exegeting the whole passage, God is talking about a group of men and women of faith that God had made some promises to, and in time and space, they never saw all of those promises fulfilled. But they weren't looking just for earthly treasure, they were looking for a greater country, a better place where we will spend eternity, heaven. And I love that statement that God is not ashamed to be called their God. You know, there are maybe some family members you have and you love them, but you're ashamed of them. God loves you, but is He ashamed of us? He doesn't want to be. They saw themselves as strangers. D. With our citizenship in heaven, that's how the Bible describes our citizenship is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, because the Bible teaches dual citizenship, that we do have responsibilities in this life. Uh, My son, Jerry and I were talking just before we came in here, had been very active in trying to... um, get a practice in our colleges and universities across the state where the kids are taught the Constitution, Federalist Papers, and Declaration of Independence. It's actually been a law for many, many years, but all the schools blew it off. The president of USC said it's an archaic law. And of course, one of their objections is now all these international students are here and they needed to change the word, and they did all that, but they couldn't get today in a committee. Meeting for people to approve that so that it could go to a vote. And yet, the freedoms that we share as Christians are based on the Constitution. Now, God is the author of freedom, I get that, but man can regulate your freedom. That's why God tells us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Why? So that we can just enjoy life, so that we might be free, more specifically, to share the gospel and win people to Jesus. God says that, so we have a responsibility as citizens here, but more importantly, our focus is heaven. As mere breath, we're like mere breath. And and that's important. That's an important lesson for my son to understand because he spent like years on this. He wrote the bill that the senator, he wrote every single word in the bill. The senator just took his wording and it got passed in the state senate. But you can spend a lot of time on a lot of issues that are this life only, and some really important issues. Like, we should do everything to protect life. We got people up in Columbia next year, they want to they peddle marijuana in this state. And if Christians say nothing, we'll probably get it. So we need to be responsible, but you also need to realize that sometimes you can break your back doing some of these things. But the things that you do in terms of the kingdom of God, those investments, they last forever. We're like a mere breath. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days, Moses writes. Let me know how transient I am. That's a good thought. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. And you see that little word, sila. It's a pause in the, in the hymnal. Pause, let's just think about this. Let it soak in. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and he does not know who will gather them. James will write, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You go outside on a cold day. You Blow your breath. We always used to like to do that on the first cold New England days. And we'd watch our breath for a moment, and then it's gone. And I remember reading that verse as a new Christian. God said, that's what your life is like. Compared to eternity, it's, it's like a breath that appears for a brief moment and then is gone. Moses will write in Psalm 90, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow for soon it is gone and we fly away. Then he says, so teach us to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. If you're 70, you've lived most of your life. I don't do that many funerals of people in their 90s. Occasionally. I told one lady in our church, she's 96, I said, I want to come to your 100th birthday. I said, I've never been to a 100th year birthday party. I've always wanted to go to one. I don't know if she'll make it or not, Miss Mary. But most people die in their 70s and 80s. You can be in great health today and then something changes real fast. Now, we number our years. Moses says, teach us to number our days. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary who literally did this. His name was Dr. Howard Hendricks. And if you walked into Dr. Hendricks' office, he had a big chart. He had 80 years on this big chart. He had 365 days across every year. And every once in a while, he'd take that black magic marker and he'd just it in. He said to me one day, he said, it's a visual reminder when I come into this office, how much time I have left to invest in the kingdom of God. F as entering with nothing and leaving with nothing. That's how the scripture describes us. Job will write, he said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb "'and naked I shall return.'" The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Timothy says, "'For we've brought nothing into this world, "'so we cannot take anything out of it either.'" So our life on this earth will affect our position in eternity. That's 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a reconciliation time. God compares our works to wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones that we tested someday with fire. God will test the quality of every man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on the foundation, remains, he's going to be rewarded. If they're burned up, he'll lose his reward. So... Our life on this earth will affect our life and position in eternity, and this becomes really important with money because Jesus habitually gauges our spirituality to money. And so typically when we blow it in the realm of money, we blow it in other areas. It's important to distinguish the difference between salvation and rewards, because you will see some passages in the Bible that will talk about rewards and others about salvation. And it's easy to distinguish them because salvation is a free gift, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's the gift of God. Romans 6, the free gift of God is eternal life. Rewards are earned. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 how he he lived his life in such a way that he would not be disqualified, that he might lay up treasure in heaven. Salvation is always described in the present tense. He that believes has eternal life. Whereas rewards are spoken of as a future attainment. I have fought the good fight. In the future there is laid up for me, Paul spoke of. It's a future attainment. So we will honor Christ in heaven with our rewards. So the whole purpose of laying up treasure in heaven is to bring glory to God. Now, how that is all going to work out, we'll talk a little bit about that as we continue our study of the Revelation. Let's uh, quickly go to the steward's perspective. I'd like to finish this section. The steward's perspective, and I've given you all the scripture, maybe it would be helpful to look up some of it. The steward is to have an eternal outlook. He is to have an eternal outlook. And the steward is to store up eternal treasure. Um, Paul says, we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. Everything that you see is pretty temporal. But there are things that you do in this life that in some ways are unseen. You can't kind of like see the Holy Spirit coming into a soul or a person's born again. There's a lot of things that happen in the spiritual realm that are unseen, and those are the things that are typically eternal. The steward's character, the one character quality that best describes a steward is he is faithful. He's faithful. It is required of a steward, the Bible says, that he be found faithful. The biblical characteristics of a faithful steward might include some of the following. He works hard. That talk's about hard work. You know, I was talking to a guy recently in the ministry, and I said, do you want me to be honest with you? He said, yes. Your problem as a pastor is you're just lazy. That's why your ministry is not successful. God doesn't bless laziness. He's generous. Jesus said in Acts 20, if you had a red-letter Bible, it's one of the red-letter verses in Acts. We think of just the Gospels, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We don't have that verse in the Gospels, but it's in Acts. He meets the needs of his family, 1 Timothy 5. Not to meet the needs of your own family is to be considered worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. Of course, in the context, he's projecting upwards. He's talking about children who are to care for their parents when they're aged and their grandparents. Why? Because when you were little, they took care of you. And when they're old, you're supposed to make sure their needs are taken care of. But you could certainly apply that downward as well if you have a family and you have children. He's cautious about debt. Why? Because the borrower becomes a lender's slave. We'll, We'll spend a whole section on that. He plans for times of trouble. He plans for times of trouble. He has learned contentment. Paul speaks about contentment. It's sad if we're never content. If I just have a bigger house, I'll be happy. If I just have a newer car, I'll be happy. If I just, 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 and we're never content. The steward's character is to be that of contentment. He is to seek to please God first. And then finally, the steward's accountability and we'll hit on some of these verses in other sections. So That's why I haven't spelled them all out here. The Bible is very clear that one way a believer will receive rewards will be dependent on the manner in which he managed God's money. We need to think about the unfolding of events as it relates to our rewards. Think about this life as it relates to our eternal rewards that Christ will someday give us. We live life on this earth. We die or we are raptured. We give an account of our lives on earth, Romans 14, and then God will reward us accordingly. Um, The last exercise, obviously this is all optional, these exercises, there's no no, one grading these or anything, but this is just a steward sheet. And sometimes when people actually sit down And they actually begin to add up what God's put in their hands. Sometimes they're amazed. And sometimes it's helpful to do that and then just to say, God, this is all yours, every bit of it. So help me now to begin to manage it. Now, some of us are here. Some of us have people in our Sunday school classes who need to be here. And you can be kind of an evangelist for good this Sunday if you attend an ABF and say, hey, you know, you should come to the course. We're going to study some stuff that will be so helpful to some people in our church family. Because most people who come, the majority of people who join our church come by conversion. And if they come by conversion, they come with the world's way of thinking on finances. And we want to renew their minds so that they can make a difference in this life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Pastor Ed, make your way to the front, if you will. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your incredible, amazing grace. You have given us so much as Americans. You've entrusted so much to us. And yet, sometimes as a nation, we just are entertained on filth and trash. We don't even stop to pause and to thank you, but we are a culture that is known for complaining and griping. Father, may you rid that out of our lives as your people. May we be seen as a grateful people. In Jesus' name.